Good evening and welcome to the third lesson of Outsmarting Anti-Semitism. This lesson is titled The Promised Land. So once upon a time, there was a Texan who was in Israel and he meets a farmer. He says, oh, we have a common language. How big is your farm? So the Israeli says, oh, I have about 50 meters in front of my house, about 75 meters in the back of my house. And the Texan says, oh, where I come from, I get up in the morning with my breakfast, I get into my truck, and I drive on my field, on my ranch, and I only end up, I only reached the end of the ranch time when it's dinner time, a whole day, 12 hours I'm driving. And the Israeli says, yep, I also had a truck like that once. <laughs> yeah. So, in a course on anti-Semitism, we have to include a class, a discussion on a different, a little bit of a different form of anti-Semitism, and that is an anti-Semitism that many people who share this view don't even necessarily realize. They are not cognizant of the fact that this perhaps is hateful. And it stems from a place of, of lack of passion and love for, for the Jewish people. And that is the Israeli bias. In today's discussion, we're going to focus on a modern form of anti-Semitism, the attempt to destroy or weaken the modern state of Israel. We're not living with our head on the, uh, 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 buried under a rock. And we know that there is this bias out there. It's a fact. And we're not, we're not here to discuss specific policies, specific incidents, what Israel did, was this right? Was this wrong? We can't debate every every incident, and that's not what we're here for. But we we we're here to give perspective, which means we're not even here to defend Israel. That's not what our the purpose of this class is, and we don't and we don't need to defend Israel though necessarily. But try let's get a, the perspective. Where does this come from? Criticism of Israel how to criticize, why do we criticize, where does the criticism come from, and what to do about the issue at hand that many people have this bias to Israel. And then we're going to really talk about also our connection. Why is Israel so important to the Jewish people? So as always, we like discussion. If you have any questions or comments, Rebuttals, please. We'd like to have a, um, a dialogue, a discussion on this important, important topic. So we begin with a lesson video. And the video is talking to us about our friends in the United Nations and the UN. And we'll see what they feel about our country, Israel. So uh, let's uh, share the video.
On the eastern shore of Manhattan Island, the United Nations headquarters rises from a row of colored flags that represent a multitude of nations. Across the avenue, the Isaiah Wall proclaims a Jewish prophet's vision of universal peace. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The UN's mission is precisely that, to resolve armed conflicts and to foster global harmony. But inside the august chambers of the United Nations, founded in 1945 as a response to a war-ravaged world desperate for coexistence, Isaiah could have easily found himself the target of virulent condemnation had he survived into modern times. Isaiah lived in ancient Israel that for over a millennia included the territories that the UN considers illegally occupied by today's Jewish state. The Temple Mount that lies at the heart of Isaiah's prophecy is no longer considered by the UN to be the heritage or possession of the Jewish people. Indeed, the tiny country that Isaiah called home has become the focus of the majority of the UN's denunciations and has inspired more censure than all of today's tyrants put together. Iran, North Korea and other brutal regimes systematically kill their citizens or deny them the most basic of human rights. Israel's northern neighbor, Syria, has murdered tens of thousands of innocent civilians. Apparently, however, that isn't very important in the eyes of the UN General Assembly and Security Council, who continually pass one-sided resolutions that single out and condemn Israel. An overwhelmingly powerful bloc led by the Arab nations promotes a narrow and slanderous agenda meant to isolate Israel. This agenda has met little resistance. The UN's General Assembly votes on 70 to 100 resolutions annually. 15 to 20 of these regularly express disapproval of Israel. From 2016 until 2020, the Assembly adopted 122 resolutions criticizing various countries. 91 of these targeted Israel. That's 75% of all country-specific resolutions. And while three-quarters of this global forum's written rage lambastes the Jewish state, precious few of the most repressive or blood-soaked regimes on Earth have received even a single rebuke. Emergency special sessions of the Assembly are rare. During the last 40 years, they've been convened for one purpose only, to condemn Israel. The Assembly's embrace of a terrorist entity has been equally astounding. In October 1974, 14 years before the Palestinian Liberation Organization even nominally forswore terrorism, the Assembly voted to invite a PLO spokesman to take part in its deliberations. This was the first time that anyone who was neither a government representative nor a head of a quasi-state was granted such a privilege. The following year, the Assembly awarded the PLO permanent representative status. A few months later, the UN infamously approved Resolution 3379, branding Zionism as a form of racism. At the time, Israel's UN ambassador, Chaim Herzog, told his fellow delegates that Hitler would have felt at home listening to the UN debate on the measure. 
For us, the Jewish people, this is no more than a piece of paper, and we shall treat it as such. Since the 1993 Oslo Accords, hundreds of Israelis have been killed and thousands injured by Palestinian terror attacks. During the same period, the UN passed dozens of resolutions deploring Israel, but not one against the terror attacks. Since the 2006 creation of the UN's Human Rights Council, most of the world's human rights abusers have suffered nary a mild rebuke. Israel, on the other hand, is chastised as often as all of the rest of the countries combined, and in terms more condemnatory. At the Council's every meeting, a topic billed as, quote, human rights situation in Palestine and other occupied Arab territories is raised as a separate agenda item, while the remaining totality of mankind constitutes a single other point on the agenda. From 2006 to May 2021, Israel was condemned in no less than 94 Human Rights Council resolutions. During the same period, Syria was condemned 36 times, North Korea 14 times, and China has been spared condemnation altogether. Even within the walls of the UN, the absurdity of its anti-Israel bias is fleetingly, partially acknowledged. In September 2006, UN Secretary General Kofi Annan conceded. Supporters of Israel feel that it is harshly judged by standards that are not applied to its enemies. And too often this is true, particularly in some UN bodies. In August 2013, UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon reflected on Israel's treatment at the UN. There are some bias against Israel, Israeli uh, people and uh, government. In December 2016, he told the UN Security Council, a disproportionate volume of resolutions, reports, and conferences criticizing Israel. One of the more telling comments came inadvertently in November 2013, when a UN interpreter failed to silence her microphone as she addressed her colleague. I mean, I think when you have five statements, not five, but like a total of ten resolutions on Israel and Palestine, there's got to be something. I mean, I know it's a, yes, yes, it's right, but it's not the, oh, there's other really bad happening, nobody says anything about the other stuff. Apologies. Okay, I understand there was a problem with interpretation. Israel is not larger than 8,019 square miles in total. It is the Middle East's only functioning democracy and champion of human rights. It is a world provider of humanitarian disaster relief and medical, agricultural, ecological, scientific, technological, and security innovations. But when seen through the lens of historical UN bias, the overwhelming majority of all the world's evils and all of the world's ills belong to the tiny Jewish homeland in which Isaiah spoke his vision of swords being beaten into plowshares. Okay, so you got it. You see what's happening. Uh, we see what's happening in the UN, and the truth is, we know it's not only in the UN. It's 
it's it's it's locally, internationally, it's our political leaders, it's people in our communities, and we'll talk about that momentarily. But first, let's put this in historical perspective. So the great rabbi in Great Britain, Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, puts this into historical context. He calls it the mutating virus. And before we read text one on page 84, let me just give maybe a, a, a little analogy to this idea. Imagine a society, a new society, that what's most valuable, what's most important, what is worshipped in this society is, let's say, coffee. Coffee is everything. The most important thing, we, we serve coffee, we grow coffee, we, everything is about coffee. Coffee, we, we bow down to co coffee is the deity. It's like the most important thing. What do you think an anti-Semite will blame the Jews of in this society? That the Jews don't uh, care about coffee. And they're violating all the rules against coffee, right? The idea is whatever is most valuable, most important to this society, that's where the haters find reason to hate the Jewish people. Let's look at text number one. Anti-Semitism is not an ideology, a coherent set of beliefs. It is, in fact, an endless stream of contradictions. The best way of understanding it is to see it as a virus. Viruses attack the human body, but the body itself has an immensely sophisticated defense, the human immune system. How then do viruses survive and flourish? By mutating. Anti-Semitism mutates, and, it, and in so doing, defeats the immune systems set by culture, uh, cultures to protect themselves against hatred. Most people at most times feel a residual guilt at hating the innocent. Therefore, anti-Semitism has always had to find legitimation in the most prestigious source of authority at any given time. So here it goes a little bit into history. In the first centuries of the common era, and again in the Middle Ages, this was religion. That is why Judeophobia took the form of religious doctrine, right? What was most important to people? It was religion, whether, whether it was the Catholic, the Christian religion, whether it was the Islamic religion, but that is what was most important to people. And therefore they had a religious hatred because of they killed our savior or whatever, whatever it was, it was a very type of religious type of hatred to the Jewish people. In the 19th century, religion had lost prestige and the supreme authority was now science. Racial anti-Semitism was duly based on two pseudosciences, social Darwinism, the idea that in society as in nature, the strong survived by eliminating the weak and the so-called scientific study of race. We know this during the time of Nazism, and the Holocaust, white supremacy, right? The idea is you're not my race, we, are, we overpower you, another reason to hate. By the late 20th century, science has lost its prestige, having given us the power to destroy life on earth. 
Today, the supreme source of legitimacy is human rights. That is why Jews or the Jewish state are accused of the five primal sins against human rights, racism, apartheid, ethnic cleansing, attempted genocide, and crimes against humanity. What is most important today in our society is human rights. After the Holocaust, after all that happened, where uh, so many people were killed, and maybe including communist Russia, everything that happened then, so the human rights idea became the preeminent authority in many, many places, many progressive places. And now we have what to blame the Jewish people. It's not religion necessarily, it's not race, it's human rights. Israel is violating all these ideas of human rights. Now, this is not to say that all criticism against Israel is wrong. Of course not. There is legitimate criticism. We, criti we, we criticize Israel all the time. It's a democracy. People in Israel criticize their government. Of course, people outside of Israel, we are allowed. Maybe we should criticize Israel. I'm critical of this government, the last government, of this Knesset member, that this incident, they didn't deal with the right that I mean, all the time. We can be critical. Nothing wrong with that. However, we have to differentiate between legitimate criticism, criticism and anti-Semitic criticism. If you look in uh, page 87, you see a figure of 3.2. And they asked, they had a survey between many, many Jews most of which were pro-Israel. And what they found is that around 59% of people who claim to be pro-Israel are critical of at least some government policies. So that's okay. We can be pro-Israel and be critical of Israel. However, what is, how might, how might we differentiate between legitimate criticism of Israel and criticism motivated by anti-Semitism? So like everything, we'll, we'll see soon what is the official, what was adopted as the US policy of what's considered legitimate criticism. But before we do that, as everything, we always have to find something in the Torah. What does the Torah tell us of what is legitimate criticism? So there's an interesting, Midrash, about Hadrian. The emperor Hadrian, we mentioned him last week. He lived in the second century CE, a Roman emperor who was extremely vicious against the Jewish people, especially after the Bar Kokhba revolt. And he decreed numerous decrees against the Jewish people, targeting the Jewish religion. And namely, he forbade circumcision and Shabbat, which is interesting because uh, hundreds of years earlier in the story of Hanukkah, Antiochus Epiphanes also forbade the exact same things. And perhaps the Romans were influenced by the Greeks who came before them, and therefore they, 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 they worshipped the body, they worshipped, they, they had a work ethic, so therefore the idea of laziness of Shabbos, or the idea of changing uh, altering the, the, the body given given to us at birth, maybe it didn't fit well with their 
ideals. But the point is, this is what he did. He had a decree against Judaism, which was very difficult. You know, the story of Rabbi Akiva and others had a lot of sorrows, a lot of difficulty um, from these Romans um, who were decreeing after, after the destruction of the temple, making it very, very difficult to be Jewish in the land of Israel. So the Midrash tells us an interesting conversation. In text number two, the man who is writing to the emperor Hadrian, his name is Imikantron, which we don't know who he is, whether he was Jewish, whether he was not Jewish, but he writes as follows. He writes to Hadrian, if it is circumcision that you hate, Arabian tribes also circumcise. The Arabian tribes, this is obviously before the birth of Islam, but the Arabian tribes perhaps were descendants of Ishmael. These were maybe the same tribes as who later became Islam. And they had this tradition, as Jewish people had, to circumcise. So wait, is circumcision something that you don't like? You're against? You feel it's wrong? Why are you allowing the Arabians, who also live under your jurisdiction, that they could circumcise? And he continues, if it is Shabbat observance that you despise, the Kuthians similarly observe Shabbat. The Kuthians were another name for the Samaritans. The Samaritans were a, a, a nation of, of people that were, that were brought to Israel a few hundred years earlier, towards the end of, this, of the first temple era, where the Assyrians uh, exiled 10 of the northern Jewish tribes of Israel. I'm sure you've heard of the, of the, the 10 lost tribes. They were exiled hundreds of years before the rest of the Jewish people. And in their place, he brought, the Syrian king brought other nations, other, other people to live in northern Israel. So the Samaritans or the Cuthians were living in northern Israel. And they also had this idea of resting on one day a week, Shabbat. So he asked Hadrian, if Shabbat is, is what you despise, why did why the decree only against the Jewish people and not against the Cuthians? Clearly, then, you simply hate the Jewish people. Their God will exact punishment from you. We don't know exactly what happened. It seems like he tried to kill. Hadrian tried to kill Imikantron, and he fled. He was saved. But that's not the point. The point is, we see already in the Midrash, a Torah source for this idea of a double standard. If this is something wrong, it should be across the board. Why are you singling out the Jewish people? So, there was a terrorist leader who had three captives. He had an Israeli, an Israeli soldier. He had a CNN reporter and a BBC reporter. And the terrorist is about to kill all three of them. But he tells them, before I kill you, I grant you one last wish. He turns to the Israeli and says, what do you want? The Israeli says, I want you to kick me. What? Yeah, I want you to kick me. Okay, gladly. The terrorist kicks him strongly. He falls to the ground. The Israeli soldier pulls out a gun hidden under his shirt and shoots the terrorist and kills him. The other reporters say, hey, if you had the gun all along, why did you ask him to kill you, to kick you? You should have just shot him. He says, no, no, no. Because then you're, you're going to report that I was the aggressor. I started first. Oh, yeah. 
So we have from you know sometimes when we uh, someone you know someone says you know Israel is uh, is is violating this or Israel is is, is and someone says, hey, well, why are you singling out Israel? But they do the same, if not worse, in this country or in that country. And then they say, hey, why are you changing the subject? With that, now we're talking about Israel. So in 1920, the president of Harvard University, Lawrence Lowell, he was tried to limit the number of Jewish students in uh, enrolling into Harvard University. And he, his claim was Jewish students cheat. Can't trust them. They're cheaters. So an alumnus confronted him and said, there are many other non-Jewish people who also cheat. He says, don't change the subject. Now we're talking about the Jews. So definitely there's a double standard. So Nathan, Nathan Sharansky, we had a video of him in two, two weeks ago. He came up with what he calls the 3D test. If you wanna know what is legitimate criticism, and what is anti-Semitic criticism? What is criticism that comes from hate? Does it pass the 3D test? Let's read this inside, text three on page 89. I believe that we can apply a simple test. I call it the 3D test to help us distinguish legitimate criticism of Israel from anti-Semitism. The first D is the test of demonization. When the Jewish state is being demonized, when Israel's actions are blown out of a sensible proportion, when comparisons are made between Israelis and, and Nazis and between Palestinian refugees camped in Auschwitz, this is anti-Semitism, not legitimate criticism of Israel. You're totally, you're, you're totally blowing it out of proportion. It's not con constructive criticism. The second D is the test of double standard, as we mentioned earlier. When criticism of Israel is applied selectively, when Israel is singled out by the United Nations for human rights abuses while the behavior of other known major abusers, such as China, Iran, Cuba, and Syria, is ignored, when Israel's Magen David Adom, alone among the world's ambulance services, is denied admission to the International Red Cross, this is anti-Semitism. Just an interesting I guess it's trivia, but it's obviously important to this discussion. Again, we're not going to, into the specifics, but one of the major, major claims that people accuse Israel of violating international law is the activity that Israel is doing in the settlements, right? We know in 1967, Israel conquered from Jordanian rule, the West Bank, as they call it, the big, big section in, center, in the center of Israel, which was the West Bank of the Jordan, which is East of Israel, the eastern side of Israel. And um, they occupied, they call it the occupation, the occupied land. And they quickly settled it. There are many towns and cities in the West Bank today. And they claim that this goes against international law. What is the international law over here? Article 49.6 that was adopted in the Fourth Geneva Convention. And it, it reads as follows. Occupying power shall not depart or transfer parts of its civilian population into the prop into the territory it occupies. Oh, you occupy this land from Jordan, from the Palestinian, and you're settling Israeli citizens in this land. It's against international law. Now, we can have a legal debate 
whether this is considered occupying land or not. Israel claims that it's not considered occupying land because the Jordanians never really annexed it, which is, which is not the discussion for tonight. That's a legal debate. But, okay, let's for a moment say that, yes, it is considered a violation of international law. Do you know for which other country this, this, um, this article was ever applied? This article was never applied to any other country besides for Israel. Now, there are numerous countries currently, and for many, many years, which are occupying land from other countries, and they are settling it. If you look on the back of the lesson, you have two pages over there of different examples. We have other countries, whether it's Russia in Crimea, whether it is Cambodia, whether it is in Morocco, whether it is in Turkey or Syria, Indonesia, Vietnam, there are many places where there are other countries occupying territory from other countries and they are settling it till today. And at one time did they apply this international law against those other countries. So again, this is just an example of the double standards that we have in the UN on Israel. But that's again, we're not, that's already a um, discussion for itself. I just want to give an example where we see clearly this double standard, which is a very big one because it's, it, you hear, we hear this a lot that you're occupying, settling occupy, occupying land. Okay, but then the third, let's continue the text. The third D is the test of delegitimization. When Israel's fundamental rights to exist is denied, alone among all people of the world, this too is anti-Semitism. Okay, so you have here on page 90, you see the three Ds, demonization, double standards, and delegitimization. So, what can we do about this? We're sitting here in the synagogue and we're studying, which we came here to study Torah and the Torah perspective of anti-Semitism. What can we do about this? So it's important to support, support Israel, support Israel uh, organization, institutions, which lobby on behalf of Israel, which educate our political leaders about Israel to understand the full picture, to understand the Israeli side as well. And again, not to say that we cannot criticize Israel. Israel does make mistakes. Of course they do. However, we have to put this all in, in perspective and in the right context. And the, uh, the criticism could come from a place of love, not from a place of hate. And uh, I'll throw in a, a plug while we're at it, that going to Israel and showing the Israeli people how foreigners not foreigners because we're, we're Jews, or not foreigners, but people from outside of Israel are thinking about them, are supporting them. It's also very uplifting. It's very important for them. In March, we will be taking a trip, a community trip to Israel, and we'd love for all of you to join us. Mike Fowler will be joining as well, and you could join us for a parlor meeting to have some more information about the trip next Thursday, 7 p.m. in Mike Fowler's house, November 18th. Please be in touch with me or Mike for more information. That was a plug for our Israel trip. But it is a true point that you do hear from Israelis that they love when they hear when they hear from other people coming to support them, flying to Israel, buying their goods, and just being hearing their story. Very very important for them.
There's another very, very sad part to this whole discussion. And as a rabbi and an educator, I, 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 it, it really pains me to see this. In January 2018, here in New Orleans, the New Orleans City Council passed a resolution which was pushed and could be even sponsored by the BDS movement, a movement which is trying to undermine Israel. And it was passed in the name of human rights, whole you know, nice, nice, convincing language, but it was clear, clearly something to undermine Israel. And as soon as the Jewish community was, was made aware of it, I definitely have to give a shout out to Arne Filko from the Jewish Federation and many others really stepped up to the plate and they, and, they, and, they, and they fought this, they spoke to the council members and they perhaps weren't aware of what they, what they were passing. And they, a few weeks later, they convened again and they reversed the resolution. And I was there, I went, they asked that people from the community come to show support. And it was very, very painful for me to watch because in addition to some from the Jewish community here speaking uh, very obviously very pro-Israel, and supportive of Israel, but there were others who were speaking negative against Israel. And the most, the, the saddest part of it all was that there were some Jewish people who were speaking against Israel. A lot of young Jews, young men and young women who were very supportive of this resolution. They felt this is the right thing. And this, they felt that this was the right thing as Jewish people. It fits our Jewish values. And that's really what's sad. To see Jews who are not supportive of Israel. And some of you may be thinking, really? Is that really true? Some of you may be thinking, of course, I know this. I know it's with, you know, with many people. It's sad. If you ask me, it's, it's very painful. And we're not here to label people. We're not here to say, hey, you're an anti-Semite. You're a self-hating Jew. That's not what we're here for. God forbid. It's the last thing that we'd like to do. We hate to label people. And we'll talk about this next week about not labeling people. But at the same time, we have to figure out what could we do to change this? Why is this happening? And what can we do to change this? So I'm going to open it for a moment and ask you, why do you think this is happening? Why are many of the Jewish youth turning against supporting Israel? There. Eric. The ones that you were speaking of probably were taken in by by years of propaganda. Okay, so just hearing all the propaganda again okay. all the time and, for and many, many years had an influence on them. Yes. Okay. Clearly. Yeah. So the young people these days, like especially like millennials and tend to gravitate being more liberal and, and those kinds of uh, thought processes and just if you're if you're looking if you're being black and white about it the more liberal you are the more anti-israel you're going to be and so they why go, why is that i i don't know why that is i've just noticed that you know you look at the party lines you see who supports israel and who doesn't it's the more conservative 
Republican folks that are more pro-Israel. And then I don't know why that is. I, I don't know. I've just kind of noticed that pattern. You, we, you go, I mean, it's, it's an argument to be made. I'm not sure if you, have, you know, there's a many, there are many, many people in the political left, liberals, progressives who are very strong supporters of Israel, but you're okay. But maybe the real liberals are for some reason against Israel. That, that's my question. Why is it, especially a Jewish, many, many young Jewish uh, boys and girls are liberal? And some are, and many are, are some, some are supportive of Israel, and many are not. But why? Why is that? They're taken in by the idea that's posted that there's an occupation of Palestinian areas of Gaza, and they're taken in by the belief that that's a, that as a human rights issue is wrong. It's not anti-Semitic. It's simply identifying with what is the current human rights issue of an occupying, you know, one power occupying a minority. And it comes out of a lack of understanding of the context in which everything occurred. Okay, very good points. So I think Jews, especially young Jews, and this is the Jewish value, is always to be progressive, always to be ahead of everyone. And that is what Judaism always teaches. Don't be satisfied, always try to grow and to change, right? Don't be happy with status quo. So Jews have always been involved with the new ideals, new values, new ideas. And historically, we found this, it's not, it's not, it's not, this is not a new phenomenon that Jews are almost going against Judaism or against what seems to be, you know, against themselves in the previous generation. So you had Hitler, Yamashima, and you had Stalin. Hitler was very clear. I don't like Jews. I am making it Juden Rhein. I'm annihilating the Jewish people, right? No Jew ever felt, hey, I want to join this party. I feel this is the right thing to do as a Jew. Uh, I'm going to fight all the Jews. Right? You don't. You don't hear these stories, right? They weren't even accepted. We don't want you. In Russia, in communist Russia, is actually very different. There are many, many Jews who join join the communist party. In fact, they had their own little party within the party. It was called the Yevsektsia. These were Jewish people. They spoke Yiddish. And their name was the Jewish party, whatever it was in Russian, however you say it. And they were, they felt, they felt very proud as Jews that we, we, you know, we got it. This is the new way. And okay, we just got to change a few things about Judaism. You know, you can still be Jewish. You can still put on tefillin. You can keep Shabbos. But as long as you believe in Mother Russia, whatever other ideals was, you're a good Jew. So as Jewish people, these people felt this is the right thing. And they were hunting down other Jews who were acting counter, doing anything which, which was deemed to be counter-revolutionary against Russia. So you already had it then. Thousands, thousands, literally thousands of Jewish people. Eventually, they, they themselves were persecuted and they were killed. And this goes back even previously in history. We always talk about the two holidays, Purim, and Hanukkah. 
Purim, Haman is like the Hitler. He didn't care about anyone Jewish. You're Jewish, you're secular, you're religious. We don't want you, we're killing you. Hanukkah with Antiochus Epiphanes was very different. The Greeks, they weren't against Jews per se. They had some issues with Judaism. They said, we have Hellenism. Whatever the, the, the values, the ideals of Hellenism were, we worship the body, very important, gymnasiums and, and sports. And therefore, we can't have a circumcision because the sanctity of the body. We can't change anything, can alter the body, right? So there are certain things that we had issues with Judaism. If only the Jewish people would change those few things and they would adopt Hellenism, we're good people. We accept it. And many Jews were Hellenists. Many Jews were Hellenized. And they, and they, and they joined Antiochus. Matisio and his, you know, the Maccabees were the minority. Many or maybe even most of the Jews, they joined the Greeks. They said, we're not against Judaism. We're just against a few things about Judaism. Just change this and just change that. But look at this new... You know, the, the, this, this new idea of Hellenism, this is beautiful. As Jews, we got to adopt it. This is the Jewish value. So this is not new. This phenomenon of Jewish people kind of working against Judaism in the name of progressive progression is not, it's, it's not new. And you see this in text four. From Darahorn. Hanukkah anti-Semitism doesn't demand dead or expelled Jews, at least not at first. Instead, it demands the destruction of Jewish civilization. This process requires not dead Jews, but Jews who are willing to give up whatever specific aspects of Jewish civilization is deemed to be uncool. Of course, Judaism has, Judaism has always been uncool, which is why cool people find it so threatening. And why Jews are who are willing to become cool are absolutely necessary to Hanukkah style anti-Semitism's success. In the days of Antiochus, this type of anti-Semitism needed these bo those boys who voluntarily underwent painful genital surgery to prove that Jews weren't a problem, just the barbarity of Jewish law. Hanukkah style anti-Semitism always promises Jews a kind of nobility offering them the opportunity to cleanse themselves of whatever the people around them happen to find revolting. The Jewish traits designated as repulsive vary from, by country and time period, but they invariably co contradict this, the specific values that the surrounding culture has embraced as universal. Thanks to Judaism's inherent uncoolness, there will never be a shortage of Jews willing to comply. So in many progressive circles today, and especially on college campuses, the prevailing cutting edge philosophy sees, sees the West as an imperialist oppressive force that exploits, exploits disadvantaged indigenous people. So you look at Israel, you say, well, Israel is the oppressor. It's an oppressive force, which is why it has to be dismantled. So that's why, like Mike was saying, and others were saying, that's why I think many, many Jews today feel it's a Jewish value. Not to let the oppressive force come in and just take over and oppress the minorities, the people who are the underdog. 
And the problem also is when there are many Jews joining these organizations, now the organizations turn and says, wait, we're not anti-Semitic. Look, we have so many Jewish supporters. Calling us anti-Semitic, of course we're not. How could we be anti-Semitic? A few things about Judaism we don't like. So it's difficult, it's difficult, it's difficult to digest. But what can we do about it? What's the solution? And I think the solution could come with having a better understanding of what, what does Israel really mean to the Jew? What is our right to Israel? Because if we have a better understanding of what our right to Israel is, we may criticize Israel differently. We may only criticize when we do fit the 3D test of Nathan Sharansky. By the way, his 3D test was, was, was adopted by the US and the UK. That's became like the official policy, what is considered legitimate criticism of Israel. So let's take a few moments to discuss our right to Israel. If I ask you, what is the Jewish people's right to Israel? What will your answer? It's from the Torah. What's from the Torah? The promises to Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. So I ask you, Eric, you could come to speak at the UN. Eric is going to speak on the topic, what is the Jewish... Jewish people's right to Israel. Eric is going to get up and say, it says in the Torah that God gave the land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay. What's Mike going to say? What are you going to say if you're asked at the UN, what is the Jewish people's right to Israel? On a secular basis or a spiritual basis? Well, there's a great difference. Okay, so start with... Because you're going to adopt the spiritual basis that the land was given to us by God. Okay. But that's not... That's but not... We also were a nation 2,000 years ago. We got beaten by other nations. But ultimately... Our, our right to that land is historical. Okay. Historical I'm not saying you're wrong. So Mike is saying, historically, the Jewish people have always been there. Or have been there for thousands of years. They've always been there. So have Arabs been there. So what do you mean by historically? But that's different. But the Jews were a nation. It was never a Palestinian nation. So Jewish people nation, as a nation. A Syrian nation, a Roman nation. But we were a nation and we were retaining that, that position from a, as a state. Okay, so, my, so Mike's argument is that historically as a Jewish nation, we've been there. Perhaps we've lost it, but we're taking it back. Okay. Anyone else want to st stand up to the podium? What's your argument? What is, is there any other claim to, the, to Israel other than historically and because the Torah said so? I was going to say, I think in the arguments when they were setting it up was that uh, God was going to give the land back, that this was a man-made transaction when they set up Israel in 1948. 
So I think there were Jews at that time that were against setting it up because um, this was a, a human transaction. See, there are people who were anti-Zionist at the time felt that we should not take control. We should not do it as, a, as humans come in. We should let God do it. Okay, that's a, that's a, that's a separate argument. Okay, that's a separate argument. We're, we're talking about we're, we're not talking about what 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 our rights aren't. We're talking about what our rights are. This <laughs> so, is there any other argument that we can we make? Well, I think one of the things that was mentioned is it's the only democratic country in that whole area. I mean, other democratic countries should want to have some kind of uh, stronghold there. No, there's, there's that. That is true. It is the only democracy in the Middle East. The question is, does that really give us a right? Right? I could set up an. I, I could go and now with bulldozers, and I can set up a democracy in in uh, Saudi Arabia, but does it give me a right to that piece of land? So, in the Declaration of Independence of Israel's Declaration of Independence, that was written by Ben Gurion and others. Like, I think there were three editions to the uh, Declaration of Independence. Eventually, the final edition was edited or written by um, Ben Gurion, and it was he 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 read it out loud on the May fourteenth, nineteen forty eight, which was, I believe, on a Friday, and it was actually the day it was prior to when the British mandate ended. Because the British man did end it, I believe, later at night, which was Shabbat, and he did not want to read it on Shabbat, so he did it a few hours earlier. Um, either way, it took him 17 minutes to read. So in it, obviously in Hebrew, he writes three compelling arguments to the Jewish people's right to Israel. One of them was mentioned here. So the, it will go in order. The first thing that he mentioned actually is international law. He says, it's, or it says in, the, in Israel's Declaration of Independence, that this right was recognized by the Balfour Declaration on the second day of November 1917, right? And then it was reinfor, re, uh, re, uh, reaffirmed five years later, 1922, by the League of Nations, which was the body before you know, United Nations. And eventually, uh, the UN in 1947 uh, came up with the partition plan. Half of the area should go to Israel, half should go to the Palestinians, and we should be able to live side by side. The Jewish people accepted, the Palestinians did not accept. And 1948, May 14th, when the British mandate ended, we declared our independence, and this was fully, fully supported by international law. So that is the first thing, international law, what do you want from us? The international community granted us this land. We have a right, a legal right to Israel. That's argument number one. Argument number two that is made in the Declaration of Independence is, like Mike said, his history. Historically, the Jewish people have been in Israel from Abraham. Abraham is 75 years old, by the way, what year on the Jewish calendar was Abraham born? Ironically, 1948 on the Jewish calendar. That's when he was born. When he was 75 years old, he goes to Israel for the first time, and God tells him that...
This is your land, right? He's in Israel. Isaac is in Israel. Jacob is in Israel. They go to Egypt. They come back to Israel. Right? Joshua, the temple one, temple two, right? Jewish people have been in Israel. There is, you could, you could, you could go to excavations. There, there is proof that we have, we have stones, we have uh, uh, coins, we have jug, we have writings, parchments to fill in. We have things from 2,000 years ago. I think 2,300 years ago, we have some of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You go to Israel today in the, by the Western Wall, they're digging, they're finding things every day. You see clearly Jewish people have been in the land for 2,500 years, 3,000 years easily. Okay, so it's, we've been here. And more importantly, actually, which, which is actually not mentioned in the, in the Declaration of Independence, is that there's, there have always been a Jewish presence in the land of Israel, which means even when the Jewish people were exiled, uh, you know, 2,000 years ago by the Romans, and most of it, you know, throughout the time, most of Israel, Jewish people did leave Israel, there were times that there were maybe a few hundred Jews, but there always was community in Israel. There was always a Jewish community in Israel. For, for, for thousands of years. We never really left. Jewish people, there's always a presence. Small presence at certain, at certain times, but always a presence. That argument's weak. It's You're right. Ben, you know, maybe the Bedouin presence that's right. as long as there was a Jewish No, but the point is that the Jewish people wasn't like, 2,000 years ago we've been there and now we've never been there. We never really left, which means together, it, it, it's, a, it's an add-on. Together with the fact that historically Jewish people have always been in Israel. I mean, we, we've been here 2,000 years. It's not... Hey, randomly, let's choose a place to live. This is our, home, you know, it's our homeland. An add-on to that it happened to be we also never fully, fully left. But okay, you're right. That, 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 that's a side point. That's argument number two in the Declaration of Independence. But then there's a third argument in the Declaration of Independence. And the third argument is actually maybe I'm out of order. The second argument is Jewish survival. And what they write over there is that uh, the catastrophe which recently befell the Jewish people, the massacre of millions of Jews in Europe was another clear demonstration of the urgency of solving the problem of its homelessness by reestablishing the land of Israel, the Jewish state. So basically we learned the bitter truth or the bitter reality, a bitter lesson that a stateless people are, uh, power are powerless. We need a place where we could call home. We need a place where wherever we are persecuted, and even today, in other North African or Middle Eastern countries, we always have a safe haven in Israel. Other countries may not let us in. We need a visa. We need a this. We need a that. We always have a place in Israel. And that is the three arguments that the Declaration of Independence mentioned. Which argument does he not mention? Eric, where were you? Where were you when Ben Gurion was making that speech? He omitted a very important argument, what Mike considers a spiritual argument, the argument of that God promised the land and gave the land as a gift to the Jewish people. Let's leave out that argument for a moment, right? Let's focus on these three very uh, rational, I think pretty compelling, strong arguments, each on its own. You put all three together and mix into the chalent. It's a, legally... Historically, survival is legitimate. We have a right to Israel. Now, if we want to do some critical thinking, how strong are these arguments? Are they bulletproof? So 
They're good arguments, but they're not, they're not complete. And perhaps this is what's missing in our youth. Let's talk about a woman or a girl by the name of Phyllis Bennis. She wrote an article titled, I'm Jewish, I fight anti-Semitism, and I support Palestinian rights. In the, in the Los Angeles Times, December 2019. You see it in text five. We're going to try to analyze, to understand what went wrong with Phyllis's Jewish education. Page 94. When I was a Jewish kid growing up in suburban Los Angeles, we thought being Jewish meant supporting Israel. There really wasn't a choice. If you identified as Jewish, and I and most of my friends did, the religious education we got, the youth groups we joined, and the summer camps where we played were all grounded in one thing. It wasn't God, it was Zionism, the political project of settling Jewish people in Israel. My own break with Zionism came in my mid-twenties after reading the letters of Zionism's founder, Theodore Herzl, imploring Cecil Rhodes, the leader of British land theft in Africa, to support his work in Palestine, their projects were both something colonial, Herzl assured Rhodes. Okay, we're not here to defend Herzl. What did Herzl mean with it? Was it just to use out to kind of get him on board? Or, was it, or did he really mean that something colonial? That's not what our discussion is. Let's understand Phyllis Bennis. Where's she coming from? And she's a very typical American Jew who grew up probably in a pretty traditional home, went to school, went to Jewish school, with a lot of Jewish friends, had a somewhat of a Jewish education. And as she mentioned, Zionism was a very big part of a Jewish education. Israel was very important. And I'm sure she heard a lot about Israel, the modern state of Israel, the vision of the founders, the vision of Zionism. Perhaps she heard about the IDF, the self-sacrifice, the daring missions, the wars that Israel won or lost, the beauty of the land of Israel, the culture, the food, the music, the language, planting trees, the prime ministers, the history, she probably learned a lot about Israel. And then one day, she reads this letter that Theodore Herzl writes about Israel being colonial. We're here to seemingly take over this place called Palestine. And she thinks colonialism? This is terrible. This goes against all my deeply held values. I can't align myself with Israel. I can't uh, support Israel. How can I do this? This is terrible. And this happens with many of the Jewish youth. They hear so much about Israel. Okay, great. But the moment they feel there or they hear that Israel is doing something that doesn't fit to what with their values, whether it's the way they treat the Palestinians in Gaza, the way they're building settlements, the way they dealt with this incident, the way they dealt with that incident, or this law or that law, and they feel like, hey, this is going against all that I stand for. So, that, so, so their support of Israel kind of diminishes. And then, 
together with everything else that they hear about Israel, they start even going against the 3D type of test, double, double standards and, and all that. So what's the problem? The problem is when our base, our foundation, our understanding of our connection, our rights to Israel is these three arguments. These are pretty strong arguments. But every argument has a counter argument. Now, I'm a very strong supporter of, a supporter of Israel. And I'm very comfortable with these arguments. But we could use some critical thought. And we could say, you know what? Are these really fully, fully uh, strong arguments? Jewish survival. Why do you need Israel for Jewish survival? You know that there were ideas to take Uganda or other places to, to, as, as a homeland. Jewish survival? Find a different place. Why Israel? Is it really Jewish survival to have such a large percentage of Jewish people all in living within a few miles? What was going through the minds of the Israelis before the Six-Day War? From the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free, right? They thought that millions of Jews will die within a few days. So Jewish survival is a strong argument, but there's a counter-argument. I'm not saying that this counter-argument is a good argument. I'm saying there is, there is counter-arguments. International law, well, we know all the time there are many laws being passed, and we are against it. We say this is bogus, this is wrong. We have we think that the international community is doing something wrong. We don't agree with every international law that passed. History, okay, it's a nice argument. Great, you were here, you left. Happens all the time. England, bro, America, right? It was owned by one people, and then a nation came in, we fought them, and uh, okay, goodbye. You know, you know. So just because the Israelis were, Jewish people were there, the Romans took over, okay, very nice, you had a history here, and now it's a new phase, now it's new people, now it's the Palestinian people, right? So there's always a counter-argument. Now, I'm not here to counter-argue, because I'm a very strong supporter, but what, what I'm here to tell you is that this cannot be the sole basis to our right to the land of Israel. We must rely on what Eric is telling us, the Torah. Now, to preface that, it's not just, hey, it's God-given. It comes with a broad Jewish education. There was a story once, interesting story. Someone once wrote to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, it's very uh, discouraged. He says, we were trying to get a minion together for someone's yard site. We have, someone had to say Kaddish. So someone called what we call, I guess, a secular Jew, someone who wasn't really interested in praying. But he said, hey, we need a minion. Could you come and join us for the minion? We need 10 people to pray to say the Kaddish. Could you join us? He said, okay, I'll join you. So he comes with his, whatever, the New York Times, or the Washington Post, or whatever, the Times, Times Picayune, and he comes with his paper, sits down in the synagogue, and he's reading the paper. He counted me as a minion. Okay, I'm happy to come. I'm not interested in praying. So he wrote to the Rebbe, he says, this is not right. If you're coming to a synagogue, you have to pray. What is he coming with you? Newspaper? So the Rebbe responded something very interesting. 
Rebbe responded, look, look at, look at this Jew. He has no interest in praying, but he was still willing to come to a synagogue to help another Jew, to make a million. There are some people that would say, I'm not interested, call someone else. He agreed to come. He has a warm neshama, and he cares for another fellow Jew to say Kaddish, so he's still coming. Now, that was the first part of the letter. And then the letter continues and says, if this person would, would have had an education to a, and he would have valued the idea of Jewish prayer, then he would not only come to help a friend, he would also open a sitter and pray. So the idea over here is that a lot of what happens is about our general, broad Jewish education. When we're talking about Israel, it's important that our Judaism should not begin and end with Israel. Israel is a very, very important piece of our Jewish education. But it's not everything. Our Jewish education begins with God. God created the world. God gave us a Torah. There are many, many commandments. There's Shabbos, there's kosher, there's prayer, there's holidays. There's, there's so much to Judaism. One very important item on the list is also Israel. So that's first of all. So Israel comes in the context of a broad Jewish education. And that is something that Phyllis was missing. Phyllis, her education was Israel was a sum total of her Jewish education. And therefore, when something went wrong with Israel, her own Judaism shattered. So we have to have the strong foundation of our Jewish education. Together with that, Israel is part of that Jewish education. Israel is part of what the Torah tells us. What is our connection to Israel? Because God gave us the land. And we'll, we'll, we'll address what Mike was saying, that in the UN you can't talk about God given, you know, God gave us a gift of Israel. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. I want to read text number six. Text number six. And text number six is from Rashi, which was a commentator on, the primary commentator on the, on the Torah. And he gives us an interesting explanation based on the Midrash for why the Torah begins with the verse that it begins with. So let me preface. The Torah is a book of laws, right? The Torah tells us how we should live our lives. The Torah has five books. Bereshit, Genesis, I'll say in English, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Where do we have the first commandments to Jewish people? The first mitzvah in the Torah. Where is, does it appear in the five books? The first mitzvah is? That's to humanity. Okay. It's, it's there towards the beginning. But the first mitzvah that the Jewish people have, to the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, is Exodus, where God speaks to Moses about the new moon, you know, about the, the Paschal Lamb. It's all the way in Exodus, which means, for the most part, the entire book of Genesis is history. God created the world. 
Seven, six, six days rested on the seventh, the story of Adam and Eve, the story of Noah, the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? And then only in Exodus do we get to the, to, to the mitzvah. So the question is, if the Torah, the word Torah means a lesson, it's a guide of how to live our lives, why does the Torah begin with the creation of heaven and earth? Why does it not begin with the actual mitzvah in Exodus? Let's read text six inside. Rabbi Yitzchak stated, the Torah should have begun with the first mitzvah commanded to the Jewish people, which is contained in the verse, this must shall be to you in Exodus. For what purpose does it start with in the beginning God created the heaven and earth? The solution is found in the verse from Psalms, and skip the verse. In other words, in, if the nations of the world accuse the Jews with the claim, you are thieves for having conquered the land for the, of the seven nations, the Jews should reply, the entire world is God's. He created it. He granted it to whoever, to whomever he desired. It was his will to initially give it to the seven nations. And it was his will to subsequently remove it from them and give it to us. Rashi tells us right at the beginning of the Torah, the reason why the Torah starts with God created heaven and earth is to tell us God is in charge. And specifically, to answer the other nations of the world. Jewish people are thieves. We don't, we don't deserve Israel. We don't belong in Israel. God gave it to whoever he desires. He gave it to us, took it away, gave it back, gave it to you, gave it to us. So the point is that it's a God-given gift. And in the year 1738 BCE, God told Abraham, in text 7, God told Abraham, raise your eyes and look around from where you are to the north and the south, to the east and west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offsprings forever. This is the basis for our rights to Israel. As the last word in text seven, forever. This is an eternal gift to the Jewish people. An eternal gift that's given from God means that even when we do not have political control over it, it still belongs to us. It's intrinsically ours. Okay? So for whatever reason, God wanted us to be outside of Israel. It's still ours. God gave it to us. Now, once God circumvented that in 1948, we were able to take it back, it is rightfully ours, not because international law agreed to it, not because we need a place for security, not because historically we've always been there. It's ours because God gave it to us. And ultimately, ultimately, this is the only argument that is a true argument that someone can't say, okay, find a different place. Well, you, you, you had it, now you left. Because this is the argument that's saying this, this belongs to us. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know what Mike's thinking. I see your face. And you're thinking... But how does this argument to the Jewish people? It's not an argument to the world at large. It doesn't apply to them. Michael, you could have been Rabbi Schneerson. Because that's exactly what Rabbi Schneerson says in text number eight. So there are two things there's what we say to, uh, at the podium of the United Nations. What do we say on CNN? What do we say to the world? 
But then there is internally, how do we educate our youth? And when we educate our youth that Israel began in 1948, then they say, okay, nice, strong arguments, but then I have problems. So why is Israel doing this? Why is Israel doing that? Do they, do they really have a right to do that? Do they have a right to do this, right? Because it all began, like you said, from humans, and humans are humans, and we make mistakes, and we're not perfect. And then someone may say, you know what? I'm like what Israel's doing, and I'm dropping my support. But if we understand, it's coming from a place of, the Torah tells us, this is our promised land, this is a holy land. And therefore, therefore, it's intrinsically ours. Yes, we still criticize Israel. And we still have problems. And many of the problems we don't have solutions for. And whatever you do, there are people who are going to argue against it. But the criticism is coming from a place of love. Coming from a place where I know this is our land. This belongs to us. And it belonged to us before 1948. 1948, a great miracle happened, and thank God we, we are there, and it is the place for survival, it is a place for security, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And there are so many good things about modern Israel as well. But it doesn't, that's not the sum total of my connection to the land. And therefore, if I have a problem with it, okay, I could criticize, but my Judaism is not being shattered. My 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 my, my support to Israel is not being shattered. I want to read text number eight. And this is a letter that the Rebbe Rabbi Schneerson wrote to Shazar. Do we know who Shazar is? How well do we know our uh, Israeli political leaders? Shazar, Rabbi Schneir Zaman, not Rabbi, Mr. Schneir Zaman Rubashov was one of Israel's presidents, not prime ministers, presidents, 1960s, 1970s. And he held a very close relationship to the Rebbe of Lubavitch. And he once wrote a letter of a complaint. He told the rabbi, why are you always talking about religion, about God, God-given land? 1948, this is the modern state of Israel. We worked hard, we fought for it, the international law, etc. Why are you always throwing in religion? Here's the rabbi's answer. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful letter. I have received complaints. This is text eight. I have received complaints. Why do I invoke the biblical land of Israel, the holy land and the covenant with Abraham in connection with the modern Israel? Why do I mix God into the picture? After all, they say, who's, who, uh, those who fought for the creation of the state, those who led it, those who currently directed and its authorized representatives, they all proclaim and take pains to emphasize that Israel is a state founded in 1948. My answer, but frankly, is that their narrative is false. No new entity was created in 1948. Rather, that was the year in which a large part of the land of Israel was liberated. An entity established in 1948 based on the agreement of the agreement or authorization of the nation of the world has no strength or justification in terms of authentic response to the claim. You are thieves for having conquered the land belonging to others. That's the quote from earlier. A claim raised by the Arabs, the Vatican, the United Nations, and some Jews as well. This is why it is so crucial to underscore that it is our God-given homeland. Now, here's where we get to the point that Michael made earlier. I do not delude myself into imagining 
that these just and honest arguments will prevail in the United Nations, the Vatican, etc. Nevertheless, transmitting this truth is critical for the morale of Jewish youth living in the Holy Land, including those serving in the IDF, for Jewish American students, and for the Jewish youth of other countries as well. We have to emphasize that Israel is not only a land with promise, but it is the promised land. Yes, 1948, there's a Medina, there's a, there's a state, a modern state of Israel, and there's a, there's a government. The government is not always, always right, and we could criticize the government, but we have to support them because this is our intrinsic land. Jewish people have a land, whether we live there or whether we don't live there. And the criticism has to come from a place of love. And if we educate, if Phyllis was educated this way, that she had a broad Jewish education, and with that came the education of Israel. And the education of Israel was, was that, there, that there's a land of Israel that God gave to Abraham and to all his descendants. Yes, there's also lots of history of the Jewish people in Israel. And yes, there's also international law and all that, the 1940, it's all part of it. But it's not the sum total. It's really about Israel belongs to the Jewish people intrinsically. Then I think even in reading about her, the theater of Herzl, about colonialism, okay, I hear you. Either we agree with Herzl, we don't agree with Herzl. Fine, that's a discussion. It's a debate we can have. We can, we can study about it. We can ask the historians to figure it out. And we can disagree with it. But it doesn't take away our connection to the land of Israel. Any questions before we conclude with one last idea? So just to conclude, just an interesting Hasidic philosophical idea of, that, that's explained, an idea that's explained in Hasidic philosophy to why is it so important for us to have a land? Why did God, why did God give us the land, a land, a piece of property? Seemingly, Judaism is not limited to a physical space. The Torah is about the way of life. We could be good Jews and following all the God's commandments outside of Israel. We're living here in Metairie, in New Orleans. We have synagogues. We have JCCs. We have kosher food. We have all that we need, Jewish schools. We have all that we need to be Jewish. Great. Living in New York, living in Miami, living in Los Angeles, living in Chicago. It's great. Why did God give us a land? Seemingly, the Torah is really not limited to a piece of land, right? The Torah is really all about actions, all about mitzvahs, it's all about, right? So what is the true reason why God gave us a, a, a land, a place that we could call home and we could live as Jews over there? So one of the explanations given is that we know Judaism has a strong emphasis on action items, actual, not just feelings and emotions, as it is with other religions, not just certain rituals, certain prayers, but actually actions to do a mitzvah. Put up your mezuzah, light the Shabbat candle, eat the matzah, hear the shofar, put on the film. Very, it's very much into, into action. The idea of action is to bring out, bring down this uh, ideas which are in our minds and in our hearts 
to bring it out into fruition into the physical world, to really change, have, to, make, to make an impact, make it to make a, 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 a impact on the physicality of the world, on the materialistic element of the world. And that's the purpose of creation, to, that godliness should have an impact on the physical. So God says, yes, you can be wherever you are and do a mitzvah, and, you know, be a, be a good Jew. But there has to be a place on earth, on planet earth, where this could be fully, fully materialized to its fullest. When the Jewish people were living in Israel, in the time of King Solomon, they had the temple. That was the epitome of bringing down the ideas of Judaism and the godly energy that happens through living a life of Judaism to the physical, physical space. So yes, in our own homes, in our synagogues, in our surroundings, we are making it a holy place. But having a land, a country, where it's a whole country, the whole it's governed by the Torah. And these ideas are really implemented and manifest in the physical space of Israel. That is really the way we bring out the idea of the Torah. So again, this just adds on another layer to the idea of our connection to the land of Israel. Isn't arbitrary? Isn't something that happened just 70 years ago? But this is something that is part of our religion. Part of our religion. We, we need a land of Israel. It was given to us by God, etc., etc. So yes, it's a spiritual argument. It is a spiritual argument. Meaning spiritual because this is a, it's a religious argument. You could say, hey, I don't believe in the Torah. Okay, great. But for Jewish people, we have to believe, meaning if we don't believe in the Torah, we don't believe in the Torah. But if we do believe in the Torah, then we have to educate our children. And this is part of our Jewish religion. Not that 1948 Jewish people conquered Israel, but part of our religion that the land of Israel, even before the state of Israel, always had a connection to the Jewish people and to Judaism. Hopefully, if we have that education with our youth, we could hopefully minimize the youth from the next generation of joining these anti-Israel um, movements. I want to conclude with a summary video. Lesson three, the promised land. One, anti-Semitism seeks legitimacy from the most prestigious authority of any given era. At present, this authority is the pursuit of human rights. Consequently, many of today's anti-Semites focus overwhelmingly on Israel and accuse it of being the ultimate violator of human rights. Two, when Israel is A, demonized, or B, judged with a double standard, or C, when Israel's existence is delegitimized, that challenge exposes itself as an expression of anti-Semitism. 3. When anti-Semites refrain from asserting that they seek to annihilate Jewry, but merely take issue with specific Jewish beliefs or practices, claiming them to be barbaric, Jews can be tempted to join the fight against their fellow Jews, believing that they are saving Jews rather than hurting them. 4. There are several arguments for why Jews need and have a right to Israel. 
Most crucial is the Torah's oft-reiterated reminder that God gave Jews the land of Israel as an eternal inheritance. The deeper our appreciation of this reality, and the more we educate the next generation about its implications, the more support we will nourish toward the land of Israel. Such an approach can desirably influence the wider audience, but the most vital audience is our Jewish brothers and sisters. 5. To support Torah and God-based reasoning, it is necessary to create an environment that cherishes the Torah and nurtures faith. It is therefore critical to provide a robust Jewish education to ourselves and to the next generation. 6. Jews are a nation not because of our land, but because of our Torah. Nevertheless, the land is important to the Torah's vision for the world inasmuch as it embodies the Jewish mission on earth to infuse physicality with holiness. Okay. Thank you for joining. Next week, change of heart. We will deal with um, what happens when a certain people in leadership seem to be unfavorable to the Jewish people. How do we deal with that? Uh, what are the do's and the don'ts that will be discussed next week? It'll be a final class. Remember, it's a four-week course this time. So next week is a final class in this course. There will be dinner served, sponsored by Angela, and dessert as well. Looking forward Keep your appetite for next week for the dinner. Thank you all for joining. Thank you, Stephen and Lisanne, for joining us on Zoom. And hopefully you'll have a good week. We'll see you next week. Thank you, Rabbi. See you next week. All the best. Take care.